0: Someone has said that there are three kinds of people in the world, those who watch what's happening, there are those who make things happen, and then they say that those who are scratching their head and say, what's happening? And it seems like this is a day of we could all scratch our head and say, what's happening? But the ability to make things happen is really a gift of leadership, without a doubt. Harry Truman defined it best. He said, leadership, he said, is to get men to do what they don't want to do, and to like it. That ability is a very precious commodity, obviously, in our modern world without a doubt. Arnold Toynbee once observed that the rise and fall of society has a one-to-one correlation with the qualities of its leadership, a concept that's hardly encouraging for you and I in this Western society. Another man, a German philosopher, once wrote, he said, the power of leadership appears to be declining everywhere. More and more men were coming to the top, who are coming to the top seem to be merely drifting. The result is a helplessness and a leadership that hides from the public. But it's, it's, it's not only in the political realm that leadership is a crucial issue, without a doubt. It's a crucial issue within our church. Leadership lacks throughout this world, but it must not be lacking within our churches and our our Life here is directly affected, obviously, by the quality of the leaders, and a study was uh, conducted about the growth patterns of, of 60 churches. Now, this this study was done quite a few decades ago, but it's still, I think, very uh, appropriate and uh, uh, apropos at the same time. It, it studied statistics for attendance, age, and income, and then surveyed the attitudes and thinking of various leaders. and we see that they discovered that whether a church was static or growing depended directly on the attitudes of the leaders, and it said where the church leaders were positive, where they were flexible, they were confident and cheerful and goal-oriented, the churches were growing, but where the leaders had little vision, creativity, or no clear goals, the church was standing still. Now, th- these aren't the only things that apply to a church or to a church leader, but these things... They need to be looked at and understood. Um, A positive outlook in terms of anyone who is a leader is going to be more beneficial. But when you think about leadership, it has to be a constant very even thing. It has to be that that leader stands up and is, in a positive way, leading wherever it may be. Now, as we read the Word of God, we surely will be convinced that God has called every single one of us as Christians to be leaders and in, in be responsible for that. Some types are very, very obvious, such as a pastor or a deacon. that's what we most would say in the church. but there are teachers, there are Sunday school teachers, those who will head up VBS or whatever it is. But in reality, the thing that has to be understood that God has called us all to be disciples. And that revol- and that involves the aspect of leadership, that we stand up and stand out in in our daily lives. You know, when you go to work as a Christian, you can clearly be an incredible leader in subtle ways that will eventually cause others to look at you and know that there's something very different about you. Someone who stands out as a leader, who does their work well, does it with positive attitude. And even when things aren't going good, they they always seem to try to figure out a way to get through that. It influences those about us. And that's the idea of leadership. But even, you know, you can't leave, as it were, as a a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can't just leave yourself sitting in the pew and not realizing that you can stand up and do much within the church. It's imperative that you see, if you see a void, if you see something that, that could be done, then find out how you can be one to help out in that circumstance, in that situation. Leadership really is a spiritual issue of great importance. And therefore, we need to acquire what I would say would be a clear biblical concept of God's standards for leaders. Now, we want to do that by looking at a very exceptional leader, one who stands out, who we would not expect in a real sense. It's not a name that comes to our mind immediately. But this one person that we'll look at here today, and by the way, I do want to preface, I should preface this as we go. I... I, this is actually a, this sermon will will go into the afternoon. I'm splitting it up into two sections. I'm gonna start it here this morning. Hopefully you'll it'll be you know, you'll be able to learn things from it and then conclude it this afternoon. So I, I I sure would love everyone if you normally don't come back, or something there's nothing withholding you from coming back is to hear the conclusion of the matter, as they say. But We want to look at someone who had a major God-given leadership role in the history, the biblical history of the church, and she is really, in reality, the only woman who stands in that particular situation. That immediately marks her out as very uniquely gifted, and she was a uniquely gifted individual, a leader of distinction from whom we can learn a great deal. And that person, of course, is Deborah. She's found in the Old Testament. She's found in Judges chapter 4. She is unique in the biblical history, and she really stands out and helps us to understand how we can be a good leader in every aspect of our life. Now, to understand her, we need to understand, first of all, the times in which she served God. And As we've seen, the book of Judges, what was it? It was a spiritual merry-go-round in which... The same things happened again and again And in Deborah's time. That cycle went around for the third time. There were three judges before her, but the psych, this is sort of the third cycle of this happening. I like that the, the terminologies I use are sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. The nation of Israel is in a downward trend. It is falling away from God, it is turning their backs from God. and. Uh, it is something that we can look at and, and learn a great deal from, but in the midst of that particular time, God raises up a particular woman, which was very abnormal, woman's. In, certainly in those days, you would not expect that God would, would look to a woman to, to, to bring about the answer to the problems that were facing, facing the nation of Israel, and they were under a great deal of pressure at this particular time. But here we saw Othniel, we saw Ehud and Shamgar. Now we see Deborah is raised up at this particular time. So we're going to look at the situation of the people. If you will, take your Bibles. We're going to turn to Judges chapter 4. I want you to read with me. We're going to start out by reading just the first three verses together in order to understand what's taking place. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Hershoth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel." It was a long duration that we see that took place, and they were under the power of an enemy that was very, very strong. Now, the first time God's people went into sin, God raised up Othniel as a judge to deliver them from the hand of the Cushan Rishatham, and for 40 years the people had rest, but they did not learn from that time. Um, We see that, but when Othniel died, the people turned to paganism and idolatry all over again, and God brought Eglon, the king of Moab, to punish them, and for 18 years Eglon Round the Israelites under his feet, under his heels, until finally the Israelites cried out to God and he sent Ehud to be their political liberator and judge. Now by this time, you would have thought that they would have learned something from it all. But from the very inception, it seemed that the nation of Israel had a terrible bent about them. They were so much of a fleshly people. Here they beheld the very glory of God so many times. They saw time and time again what God had done on their behalf. And time and time again, they, in, they, in disobedience to God, turn away from Him, and they do not follow His direction, His word, his, what He clearly had stated to, to them. From the beginning, when He was leading them into the, into the land, God had said clearly, you are to destroy the enemy, eradicate the enemy. Why was that? Because the influence of that people within the land, and the influence of their gods would begin to consume the nation of Israel, and they did not listen, they disobeyed. But they didn't get the point, but no, no, no. Um, You would have thought they would have after a period of time, but they did not. Now, it's interesting, the master teacher, our beloved Lord, our God, had made the lesson very painfully clear, but unfortunately Fortunately, people usually, they don't learn from obvious lessons very quickly. And so in Judges chapter 4, verse 1, the cycle started all over again. They did evil. They turned from God. They threw themselves into the pagan religion, which was very sensual. It was very corrupt. It was depraved worship of the Canaanites. That's why God wanted to get rid of them. He wanted them eradicated from the land, and they did not do that. Um, they're very powerful. The, the, the influence on the flesh of, the, of, a, uh, of man was so great that they, they, their emotions, they, they would run towards these things in disobedience to God. Now, as we see the situation of the people, it comes down to the fact that they had become, they, we see what it is, is that's the servitude of Israel. They became slaves, slaves in the sense of, to their own sin, they became slaves to the nations around them every time they disobey God. So once again, the people of Israel were forced to learn the principle that our Lord has taught, taught when he was on this earth in John chapter 8.34, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. If you drift into sin, not drift, if you walk into sin, if you run into sin, you're going to be the servant of sin. It's so true. We all know it. We all should acknowledge that and we should avoid it. And one of great Satan's greatest lies is the fact that sin is liberating. You know, it's amazing. You look at the world today, that people think that they can do whatever they want. They've cast off god. They have ignored his word. The influence of Christianity is being being is less and less and less and people are turning more and more away from it and they think by doing what they do that they're going to be liberated and what a bizarre, bizarre world. I I, I was flabbergasted this past week and I'm not, I don't know the fullness of it, but there's a, some crazy show that I happened to see when I was looking at some news at my daughter's house. These people are going on dates and they're dressed up like animals. They they got heads, they, they're, they, they're Gross, as a matter of fact. And you keep thinking, is how is this possible? How did how can we keep going this way in this downward trend? But folks, when you see those scriptures, when God's people are on this spiral, that this sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. The nation of Israel, they did that. And at times we're prone to do that, and we need to avoid it. But the truth is that sin enslaves beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, when Israel turned to Baal worship, the Lord, it says, sold them into the bondage of a Baal worshiping king, Jabin. Long time ago, he was a king of Hazor, and uh, he at this time he was in a place. He wasn't the king of the entire country where the, the nation of Israel was, he was probably king of a loose confederation of all the other kings that, had, that were in the land at that time. Jabin, where he was in Hazor, he was in a central location, as it were, and uh, at the, one of the crossroads uh, that led from the Mesopotamian region down towards Egypt. So being a crossroad, it was a very centrally located place, and uh, he, he played then a very very major role he stood out as a uh, leader among the confederation that was going on at this particular time. Now, under Joshua, 150 years earlier, when the people trusted God, they had burned the city of Hazor and killed the king, whose name was also Jabin. But now another king named Jabin, aided by a very brilliant, brilliant general, whose name was Sisera, who swept down to dominate the northern tribes of Israel. So the northern tribes of Israel are being ground down. Why? Why? Because they sinned, they turned their backs to God. They were engaged with the world. They sought out the things of the world, not the things of God. We're told for 25 years, these northern tribes, they were oppressing severely, and they were oppressed severely by Jabin and Sisera. And militarily, Israel was confronted by two very strong, incredible facts. Number one, we're told that they had 900 chariots of iron. They had the greatest present military accoutrements of their day. And on top of that as well as they apparently had a very large number of infantry. Those two factors made it almost impossible, it made it impossible for the nation of Israel to go to war against them as, you know, just in their own flesh and their own power. There was no way that was going to happen. This was the very latest in the military technology of its time. These chariots made it impossible for Israel, we're told to defend the valleys and the plains. They couldn't go there. They didn't have a place where they could legitimately, as it were, or possibly uh, fight the enemy and have any kind of equality with them. They were not as large. They did not have those particular things. So what we see here in in this position, it was an extremely intense and very bad situation. Israel was literally outgunned, they were outmanned, and they were outpositioned. And They not only lacked iron chariots, but they also lacked virtually all iron weapons as well. When you read chapter 4, you can look at chapter 5 where Deborah's song uh, that they had composed and they were singing, it it kind of fills in some of the details that you don't see in chapter 4. What you see here is in verse 8 of chapter 5, it says, and I'll translate it a little easier, but they said, they chose new gods. Then was was war in the gates, and was there a shield or spear seen among the forty thousand in Israel? Well, the answer is no. The essence is, they didn't have weapons, they didn't have iron, they did not have anything to fight against this enemy, and they are now in a very bad situation. Now, humanly speaking, it was a hopeless situation. A lot has happened. I don't know where it all started, how, how long ago, but everything started to, to to the pressure of the world coming upon Christianity. But we see here: there's times what seems impossible. There's going to be battles that seem impossible. But there, it why do why why is it that they attack a baker, in order to? to somehow hurt him. It's not that it's not, they take him out. They think he's going to be the big example. There are others who stood. And, uh, but for Jack, who, who stood firm and is in his third uh, time of being, a, have a court case against him, he must be, I wonder if he sometimes thinks this is impossible. I think of the, the ones up in Canada, these pastors. You know, at times it would appear in our humanity that the situation is hopeless. But it's never hopeless for us, is it? Never, never, never. I mentioned to you today, and keep in mind the sovereignty of God. Never sleeping, never slumbering. God knows all things at all times. He sees it clearly, and he is working out his will in our lives. And he did so with the nation of Israel. For them it was hopeless. And I imagine many of them, or most of the, the majority of those, Israelites, and yet they're probably in the land, some very wonderful, wonderful people who stood very, very close to the Lord, that, that, that everything seemed impossible, what were they to do? They were facing a nation that was armed to the teeth. But despite the external appearances, Israel's real problem, it was never militarily. The problem was spiritual, and oftentimes the battle is not in the physical realm. It is always behind the scenes, as it were, in the invisible realm of the spiritual. Sometimes what goes on in our lives, why do things sometimes happen? God begins to chasten us, and we, don't, we, we, we do know at times, but we don't know at other times. But God is working out His will, and there's not an impossible situation we'll face. I think the, the difficulty of our humanity is that when we face the pain and suffering and difficulties of our life, we, we stay in the immediate moment and the fact is we need to look at the fact that no matter how it works out, that may God be glorified in whatever happens, but to know that we are headed home, that this is not the place where we belong. And God may not solve it the way we want it to be solved. He may not come in and just literally wipe out the enemy. He may allow it to take place. And these, these pastors have gone to prison And we think, oh, Lord, why, Lord, couldn't you just stop this from happening? God says, I am working this out. I'm working it out according to my plans and my purposes. We need to trust him. He'll do that. But for Israel, the problem was never in the physical realm. It was the spiritual problems they were facing. Now, if Israel would trust God, he would deliver them from even the most impossible situation. And he proved that prior to this a long time ago, folks. You know that. He clearly worked, and, he, and the delight the, the, the I have as I look back in the Old Testament is that so oftentimes it says, I will go before you and I will destroy the enemy. But it meant still that those whom he was working through had to fulfill what he wanted them to do, do what he clearly stated them to do. What you will see happens here. But oh, how many times... Um, when Jerusalem was surrounded, the enemy was going to come against the Jerusalem itself. What was it, 100,000 or something like that were destroyed by God? I mean, God will destroy the enemy. He knows who they are and He'll deal with it at times like that, but He doesn't always do it quite like that. So here we see a situation, very, very difficult. He. He did not raise up a great warrior in this situation. He did not raise up an Othniel or a Shamgar or an Ehud. Instead, in this military hopeless situation, he chose a woman to be the deliverer of his people. Naturally speaking, folks, it was the best place. Uh, it was the last place, rather, that Israel would look for help. But she was God's answer to their needs. Israel would not look to a woman, but God had raised up a woman. And that was, it's so interesting to see that. You know, sin left unchecked leads to slavery, to sin. It destroys all that is good. It takes away real joy and goodness. It brings false joy, pleasure, and hope. And it's the downward spiral that took place. But oh, God never leaves us in that position. He loves each one of us as his children. If he has to chasten us, he will. It will not be fun, it will not be pleasant. But, but, Chase, chastisement from God is the greatest thing that can happen to our life at that particular time. That's the situation that we find Israel in the midst of. They were the servant, they were in, uh, slaves in the land in which they should have owned itself. They should have been in control. So from the situation of the people, I secondly, I want to start out and will not conclude this morning, but we want to see Deborah the judge. Deborah the judge. Turn with me again in your, your Bible, and let's look at verses 4 through 9 together. Verses 4 through 9 of chapter 4 of Judges. It says, "In Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lippidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel uh, in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak the son of Abinom out of Kadesh Naphtali. And said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him, I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, if thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest. Shall not be for thine honor, but the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So we see here, as we look at Deborah, we see that we we want to look at her position as it currently stands here. We don't know many things about Deborah, really. For example, we're told nothing about her family. We're, we, only, we don't know anything about her ancestry or even what tribe she was from. Her husband was named Lipidoth and beyond that scripture is very silent about him. She's not insignificant by any stretch of the imagination but little information is given about her. But the reality of it is when you look at her life, you see the fullness of her story. But as we look at her position, there are two things that stand out here about Deborah at this particular time, and they were major, major, major positions. First of all, she was a prophetess. She was a prophetess. A prophet or prophetess spoke on the basis of a revelation from God. He spoke directly to these individuals, and there were so few of them in the course of biblical history. And oftentimes, the majority of them were men, but we see that from time to time, there were women who were classified as prophetesses, and uh, she was one of them. Sometimes it was a revelation about the future, other times God revealed His will for the present, and the prophet could do that because he was filled with what? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwelt in the individual, that prophet and the prophetess. What a key point that is. You and I, as children of God, know that God dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And it's so key and so important that we listen to the Holy Spirit so that we know what is right and wrong, that we do what is right and not wrong. And we can be used by God wherever and whenever He might choose to use us. And here we see this woman who was one who was filled with the Spirit and God used her And God was revealing truth uh, about Himself in her, and it was God and only God who made the prophet. And that's something we we have to remember. We can praise God that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. It doesn't make us in 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 it doesn't cause for us to puff up in pride, but rather in great humility. It because it's all of God and none of us. He must increase; we must decrease. And we must be used by God as He sees fit. Now in the entire Old Testament, we're told that only three women were said to have the gift of being a prophetess. And that that was Miriam, the sister of Moses, Huldah, a woman who spoke for God in time of Josiah in 2 Kings. And the third, of course, was Deborah. Now in the New Testament, we also see, we meet some women with this gift. We see that Anna the older woman who saw the baby Jesus in the temple, we see the four daughters of Philip in Acts chapter two, verse six, were classified as prophet, prophetesses. And these, we see these names there. They were received incredible gifts by God. So we see first of all that Deborah was a prophetess. And the second fact really elevates her as special as well, and that we learn about Deborah is that she became and was a judge. Verse 5 depicts individuals from the whole nation. They went up to the hill country of Ephraim so that Deborah could hear cases and render judgments. And because of the obvious gift of God in her life, she had become the political and judicial center of the nation. A woman. Unique. Not something that happened hardly at all. At all. As a Matter of fact, it did not happen at all. Were women used by God? Throughout the history of the the Bible, absolutely. Will God use women in whatever time we have left? He surely will. And it's amazing how God, he oftentimes answers in places we do not look for. But God is there. Sometimes it's in a still, small voice. Sometimes it's very clear to us, but sometimes it's not. Those two facts make Deborah absolutely unique a prophetess and a judge. Folks, there was never, never a time in the nation of Israel's history when God chose a woman to be their leader. And wicked, we see that back in the Old Testament, back in 2 Kings, Queen Athaliah became supposedly the head of uh, of the nation, Uh, the northern tribes, I believe. No, it was Judah, I believe. But uh, the fact of the matter, she only got there by how? She murdered her family in order to take the reins. I mean, how gross is that? I can't fathom that, but she did. And we see that Deborah was chosen by God. She was called by God. She was raised by God. She was empowered by God. She was God's leader. There are times when I, I was thinking about this, planning for this. My mind goes to think about, so all of a sudden, who do I think about? I think of someone like, here in our own little area, I think of someone like Jelaine Appling, Uh, A good example, she stands out, she's a leader, a strong leader, a good leader, a woman willing to be used by God, and she's being used by God. And uh, I'm so thankful I hear her on the radio, and I'm glad for that. But the question is, what is your relationship to the Lord? Are you available for God to use today? Are you willing to be used by God in any way? You know, it's hardly surprising to discover that this unique woman had some outstanding gifts as a leader. In this chapter, we're going to see some significant principles of leadership that embody her. But the question I ask of you is, where are you today in your relationship with Jesus Christ? You have the Word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. God wants to use you. You don't have to be used in a national sense. There's much that can be done here in the local church that God can use you. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever consider that God wants to use you in some form or fashion? Or are you just going to sit back and wait for it to happen? So many times, good leaders, good leaders seem to fall by the wayside because they they seem to lay down and they give up the way they're going. And then others step in the the, the path and uh, they have to do it. There's times when there are people who th- who just don't feel like they have the ability to do something, but in if one were to surrender to the will of God, it is not about the individual, it's all about the power of God in the life that makes all the difference. What you see here in Deborah's life, she should never, never, in, in reality, in, in the eyes of the men of that particular country, they would never have expected a woman, they didn't probably in some ways when they first heard about Deborah probably said, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. The fact of the matter is God will use anybody when he wants to. And I have to ask you, what about you? What about your life? What are you, are you listening to God? Are you willing to obey him and to go where he wants you to go, do what he wants you to do? Folks, we're too, we're too full of God's blessing here in America, but that time is coming to its end. We're being compressed. But now is the time to rise up, listen to the voice of God. And as we will look at later on today, some of the qualities, the leadership qualities that this woman possesses, the fact is we look at the life, <clears throat> we look at an example of someone who shouldn't, by all logical conclusions, would not be a leader, here she is. I'm asking you to think about your own life. Forget about everyone else. You need to think about your own life before, your relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to take now, I want to have a word of prayer, and then uh, we're going to just sing a, a song, I Surrender All. I wonder if you surrendered your all to the Lord. Have you given, your, have you given up your life of Jesus Christ? Someone like Paul surrendered his all. Someone like John, he was willing to suffer whatever God wanted him to do. We look back in the Old Testament, men and women who rose up willing to be used by God. To some, it cost them their lives, but their lives brought only eternal life to them. But folks, what about you? Have you surrendered your all to Jesus Christ? Let's pray, and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We've dealt with the very clear facts about a woman, a very special woman who was risen up, Lord, to serve the nation of Israel, <clears throat> and she was used by God in a very powerful, powerful way. And I pray the Heavenly Father that even at the outset, that we'll conclude later on today, I ask that you would be with us and help us to examine our own hearts, because God wants to use every one of us. We need to be leaders. We can't just lay down, we can't just forget about being at church here today and starting out Monday and say, what a good day it was, and then we go on with our lives and we drift until next Sunday or Wednesday night if we show up for prayer meeting. I pray thee, Heavenly Father, it's time we awaken out of our sleep. It's high time. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, and soon the Lord will call And Father, what what, what truly troubles my spirit is the fact of understanding, is the fact we'll give an account to you, Father, for what you have blessed us with. Speak to the hearts of my brothers and sisters and to myself as we sing this song.